My guest today is Erica Adler. Erica has almost 25 years experience in healthcare law. Mainly, she represents individual providers, physician groups, and other healthcare entities, and she has a specific focus on regulatory and transactional law. So, structuring deals, joint ventures, she's lately seeing lots of merger and acquisition activity, which she talks about in the episode. She also has deep experience dealing with Stark, anti-kickback statute, fee splitting, just the corporate practice of medicine in general. Another interesting thing is Erica has a popular healthcare podcast called Health Law Hotspot. So she has lots of topics on there, but mostly private equity acquisitions, Stark Law compliance, employment and HR issues, really timely subjects for the private practice audience. I'm going to link to her podcast below. I hope you enjoy this episode. Erica, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. My pleasure. I announced your bio before this started. And one of the things that you have a lot of experience in is mergers and acquisitions. So I don't know how long this topic will take us, but I think it'd be a great one to get warmed up with. Great. I mean, I'm happy to talk about this. So, you know, we work exclusively in my practice group with healthcare providers and whether they're physicians or dentists or other providers. M&A activity is huge. We saw it in 2021, 2022, even more so. So there are a ton of deals going on. Depending on the specialty of the region, you might see uh, different types of specialties being sought after. There's a lot of money out there to buy these practices. Some people are in favor of it and some aren't. Obviously, there's pros and cons to, to every type of transaction. So we're still seeing a lot of smaller transactions where we see physicians buying from other physicians, maybe some hospitals buying up practices. But by and large, we're seeing a lot of private equity venture capital buyers. And, you know, there's a lot of talk out there to help care about whether it's a good thing or not a good thing. You know, everybody has their own opinion. I've seen a lot of changes in the type of private equity buyers that we're seeing. You know, a lot of them a few years ago were very corporate. They hired the doctors, locked them into contracts and were like, these are the rules and you're going to follow them. We're paying you a lot of money. We're in charge, right? And, you know, some doctors still did it, particularly if they were near retirement, let's say, and it was their way of uh, kind of preparing for that. But we've seen a little bit of the change. And there's a case going on in California that, you know, is going to perhaps impact this a little further, where some doctors that were bought up by a large private equity in emergency medicine filed a lawsuit having to do really with whether the private equity buyer was getting too involved in the practice of medicine. And what are those things that make you too involved in practice of medicine? Is it the amount of staffing? the kind of supplies, the tests that you are required to order or told not to order, the amount you're charging, you know, that's kind of a, a term of art, really. What is the practice of medicine? Obviously, separate from clear clinical decisions, right? So I think in light of that, what I've really seen in the past year, regardless of where that case, you know, may end up, if we ever actually see a decision being made, is that I'm seeing a lot of private equity buyers very sensitive to this. A lot of them are setting up clinical decision-making committees on which the physicians sit. And maybe they're the ones that have input on hiring and firing doctors, deciding staffing, et cetera. With the idea and the understanding, of course, that private equity has a certain business model. The model is that they take money from their investors. They buy up practices. They try to make those practices more profitable. They take the money. They return it to their investors, and then eventually they sell to a bigger buyer. So there is a model there that's maybe not the most compatible with medicine in some ways, 
but you can't go into a private equity transaction thinking nothing's going to change because it does not match the intent of the buyer, regardless of the reassurances that you get, right? So there are a variety of documents involved in every transaction, and you can see the control that they're exerting. Some of them are certainly more collaborative than others. Some are trying to protect patient services, patient care, physician happiness, then, you know, it's unlearned, right? So I think, you know, I talk a lot to doctors about choosing whether or not they want to sell to private equity. You've got to know what your goal is, right? If your goal is to partner with private equity, build something together, then yeah, private equity might be a good partner. If you're near retirement and it's your way of kind of putting money in the bank, then maybe it works for you with the understanding that you probably have to work for a few years to be able to keep that money, right? So you need to understand your reasons for it, the pros and cons. And then, of course, there's a lot to be negotiated. So you can tell very early on, are your goals, values being matched by that particular buyer? And there are multiple buyers out there. Nobody should ever feel that they have to sell to someone because other people are. There's nobody else who's interested. I mean, there's a whole brokerage area of the economy where all they do is make these matches between buyers and sellers. And so there's somebody out there for you if you're interested in doing this. And so it really just takes a lot of kind of diligence and thinking about what you're looking for. And another big thing where we're involved, we, you know, we represent thousands of positions. And the number one thing that I see is that people suddenly decide to sell. Like there's a lot of emails that come to them and one day they decide to respond to one, right? Like, I don't know, that particular day they were like, you know what? I really do want to retire. I'm going to look at this email and they reach out. It takes some planning to be able to successfully sell your practice. That planning involves being on top of what you're building, understanding how you're set up, making sure your corporate documents are in good shape, making sure you've done your own homework in terms of compliance. I can't even tell you the number of deals that either fall apart or have a huge hiccup because billing wasn't done right, incident two wasn't built properly, they can't find records, they have an audit going on, et cetera. So preparing ahead of time. And then of course, what kind of promises have you made the people who work for you, right? So if you promise somebody's going to become a partner after two years and then suddenly you're being offered $10 million, you've got that promise out there. Did you give away a right of first refusal? Do you have non-competes in place? You know, so I what we'd like to do is really work with our clients like ahead of time, maybe or maybe not. Will they ever have an offer out there? But they're going to be ready when the time comes. And that really is kind of the preparation. The deal goes smoothly. It costs you less money. People are happy. It's a very stressful process to sell your practice. And when you're finding all these things that your CEO did wrong, your CFO did wrong, your accountant never told you, your basic corporate lawyer didn't understand or whatever it is, it's very frustrating. It's embarrassing, cause you to lose a great deal, right? And so it's a very involved process, but... We like to kind of tell people, if you're even thinking about it, like a little idea in the back of your mind, maybe in five years even, you know, plan now. Like most of my clients have been pretty happy with the transactions they've done. We may see a trend where people start to undo it, but for now, there's there's so much money out there that I don't see that slowing down yet. Yeah. And so that brings up several questions. Number one, you're absolutely right. And especially, I think, in the in the private practice physician world, you have a group of people who are, number one, some of the busiest people in the world anyways. Number two, now they're trying to pay attention to get their business ready to sell. Number three, they may not understand all the moving parts. We had an in-person meeting and, and a physician from California said, hey, when I started this process, I thought EBITDA was something on a menu at a French restaurant. 
<laughs> so now he's, you know, he's trying to get up to speed on what his EBITDA is. It turns out they don't really, you know, their EBITDA is almost zero. And so now he's, he's going to work to increase the profitability of the business to get it ready oh. to make Dell one day. And, and yeah, like you said, it's not as simple as, hey, we'll pay you 5X EBITDA, whatever. All the moving pieces. And then some email pops up that says, you promised this junior physician a partnership one day. And now he has the right. email. So all these things coming back to bite you, not right. necessarily just, hey, I'm, I'm finished. I'm going to ride in the sunset. You guys pay me off. But how many of these MSO, DSO deals have you been involved in? Well, so first of all, what you're calling it an MSO, DSO deal. So let's talk about what that means. So typically... Private equity buyers are an entity or a grouping of different types of entities, right? In some states, they can literally go in and buy the doctor practice and employ the doctors, okay? In other states that are corporate practice of medicine states, they cannot own the entity that employs the doctor, okay? So in those states, they typically use a management entity called an MSO, where both the private equity buyer and often the physicians who are selling get a piece of it. And that entity manages the practice, which could be owned by one doctor in the state and everybody's kind of ducked into it. Or maybe even the doctor who's selling, maybe that doctor, the friendly doctor or friendly doctors, plural, right? So just so we're talking about the same thing, private equity can be set up in a variety of different ways. That's the most common way. So we do about 20 to 25 of these a year at any given time. We're probably doing about, a, you know, 100 to $150 million worth of private equity deals at the same time. I would say, you know, the multiples we're seeing maybe this year are a little bit lower than last year, for sure, but we're still seeing more deals this year. So I don't know what that really says. I think people are, you know, negotiating a little bit harder on the private equity side to pay less. Mm-hmm. And I think doctors are seeing a lot of their colleagues have sold and they're like, oh, me too, me too. You know, I want to sell yeah. also, right? So, but we're doing a ton of these and they're, I mean, they, they're all basically the same structure in almost yeah. every single deal. Regardless yeah. of state, specialty, et cetera. Yeah. And let's, I think I know most of the benefits to doing this, which is this is a way for a physician to sell. Otherwise, you know, me as a, a lay person can't go and say, hey, this is a great practice. I'm going to buy it. You're ready to retire. I'll take it. Right. That can't work. Reimbursements are flat or declining that, right. Doctors haven't gotten a raise in a long time from insurance companies. Some of them are savvy to the, the cash pay market and they're going that way, but lots of them either can't or in their part of the country or they're not. Right. Uh, the practices I've talked to about it, it does sound so appealing for someone to show up and say, hey, we manage the business side of business. You want to do surgery and see patients in clinic, but you don't want to do all this hiring, firing insurance, you know, negotiating, staffing. And, and they say, oh, that sounds so good. If someone else could do that stuff. So is that really how it goes in the best case scenario? You know, depending on the buyer, how experienced they are, how large they are, can there be some cost savings? For sure. I mean, they have often better benefit plans, let's say, for employees. So they can take over kind of your, your non-clinical staff. They may get better rates for malpractice. Questionable, depending on if they're multiple states or not. So it's a case-by-case basis, right, as to what those benefits are. But certainly, they try and sell you on the cost savings, for sure, right? In terms of the management aspect of it, surprisingly, doctors are very often torn. On the one hand, they're saying, you know, I just want to practice medicine. I don't want to have to manage things anymore. On the other hand, they're like, I want to say it everything, <laughs> right? So it's a little bit of a, a conflict. I don't actually, I mean, I think there are expectations that the doctor will stay involved in the clinic uh, on an ongoing basis. And I think some doctors 
end up a little bit disappointed that they didn't get relieved of some of those responsibilities. And I think that's where contract negotiation becomes really important, understanding what you are saying you're going to do post-closing. The recruitment efforts that are made, you know, it's hard to find doctors sometimes. So definitely you're assisted with some of the recruitment piece of it. There are other benefits. You're certainly not going to see that type of money coming from a non-private equity buyer. In terms of contract, you know, payor negotiation, I, I think it's, you know, I, I haven't seen that they're getting tremendously better rates, but doctors are somewhat relieved to have the day-to-day billing, collection, authorization aspects taken off their shoulders and to get support on things like perhaps a wider call pool might be available, having staff that the the PE buyer provides, maybe to handle prescriptions, you know, stuff like that. So some relief from some of the the noise that takes away from the day-to-day practice of medicine. We definitely see that. Some buyers do a better job than others, though. Sure. And can you speak about in the last few years, I've seen it in, uh, pretty prevalent in orthopedics, now in dentistry. Are there other service lines that you see? These are the ones that have done the most MSO groupings, and these are the ones that we see coming up now. I would say the number one that I do that's popular, I mean, every single person getting offers right and left is derm aesthetics. Hmm. All the cash-based businesses are the hottest ones and all the private equity are fighting over, for sure. We're seeing, you know, clinics coming over from Canada in particular, competing to buy up practices here. We have derm deals going on in multiple states, but also other specialties. We're definitely seeing orthopedics, retina type practices, allergy and asthma, urology, gastro for sure we're seeing. So a lot of other specialties as well. And there's a lot of data out there of, you know, the type of specialty that are particularly hot. For some reason, it's regional. It might just be that private equity started in the Midwest and they're buying up practice there and that they're going to head out to a different part of the country. So some of it's timing, it region. Some of it might just be that certain specialties are hotter, particular parts of the country, right? But that's really what we're seeing, you know, the, the, the more popular practice for sure right now is yeah. the derm instead of, oh, the medicine as well is another one. Mm-hmm. So, so how did, just curious, how did you guys become so, how did your practice become so prevalent in healthcare? You, you said you total represent over oh, 10,000 doctors across the country. I represent about 10,000 physicians. So my practice is fairly old. We were a smaller firm that exclusively represented healthcare providers. We merged into our firm where we are now, where their healthcare department. And it's a kind of a funny story. I don't know if I'm going to describe it properly, but my two founding partners in my firm were tax lawyers. They worked for the IRS previously. And at some point, healthcare professionals were not able to have retirement funds for their professional type of entities. So they had actually been lobbying uh, the government to, or the IRS or or the tax representatives to allow for this change to retirement planning. And as a result, they ended up with a lot of physician clients and kept most of those clients. Now, back then there really wasn't healthcare law like there is now. So I'd been practicing about 25 years and only right when I started practicing, did we see stark anti-kickback more recently, HIPAA, et cetera. So these laws that we considered healthcare laws did not exist back in the 70s when all these physicians really became clients. So our, our firm was really just grown from that. So we represent individual physicians and practices across the country, as well as other, you know, hospices, home health, nursing homes, et cetera. We don't represent hospitals. Sorry, hospice, we do. Hospitals, we don't. Because our group does everything for doctors, including licensing issues, medical staff, and we're always adverse to the hospitals on the medical staff issue. So kind of chose our side. So we're very pro-physician. We still set up 
lots of independent practices and represent a lot of them. I think I was mentioning to you, we do concierge medicine. We help them with investigations into healthcare laws, audit, FBI investigations. We help during COVID, you know. And so we really are just like everything to our physician practices where they're general counsel. And of course, a lot of them started to sell, right? And then we sold them and then other practices that weren't even our clients, when they needed help selling it, they, you know, the community is a very small one. They started coming to us as well. And whenever you do a transaction, there's a team of people that you really need. In addition to your financial planning and your accounting, you really need on your healthcare team, your corporate M&A person. You absolutely need a tax person. There are a lot of tax ramifications to setting up an M&A deal in the right way and doctors who don't even understand what kind of entity they are, a C-Corp versus an S-Corp. And, you know, they can really get themselves in a mess if they're not getting good advice on that. But you also need somebody who maybe can answer benefit questions about the pension plan that need to be terminated. And as I mentioned, almost every deal, there's regulatory issues that come up. You weren't paying somebody properly. You weren't complying with Stark in your compensation formula. And so in almost every deal, we're doing self-disclosures mm-hmm. to the government. Not always because our client figured it out, but usually buyers will do audits as well. And they'll let you know, oh, by the way, you're not compliant with Spark. What are you going to do about it? Right. And so we'll do that. So our team is really everything, you know, that might come up in a transaction. That's what we're set up for in terms of healthcare clients. And so every single person kind of plays a role in that process. And so that's kind of, we built it around the practice format. Is there one big thing that kills these deals or is it? You could you couldn't put your finger on a most most popular thing that kills them. Well, definitely we've had some compliance issues kill it. I have one right now that I think any day now it might die because there's been such tremendous compliance issues and it will take some time to fix it and rebuild. So maybe not kill it forever, but for sure for the next couple of years. So we've had that happen. You know, we always manage to get it done at the end of the day. We've had some deals fall apart, but to be honest, the reason they've fallen apart have been, you know, a dislike growing between the buyer and the seller. I've had clients either just not like the way they're being talked to or treated by the buyer, you know, and I'll say this, and I tell all my doctors this, is your lawyers are a reflection of you, right? If you are collaborative, cooperative, and fair, and you want your lawyers to be that way, that's something to communicate. When I am mistreated by the buyer's lawyer, and they are rude they're not collaborative. They are, you know, just, it's our way or the highway. What does that say about what the relationship is going to be going forward? I usually find that to be a, a very interesting parallel in terms of how my client feels about how they're getting treated by the buyer. So I think that's something to really kind of pay attention to. I have had people walk away, at, you know, to my relief, let's say from a particular buyer, and it happens to be on the same deals where we felt we were being grossly mistreated by the council as well. On the other hand, there's some, I've done multiple deals with the same buyers and their lawyers, and sometimes they don't always have the same lawyer on every deal. And, you know, they really do convey the attitude of their clients and they, they treat us well. I mean, doesn't treating somebody well doesn't mean everybody gets whatever they want all the time. It just means you're respectful and collaborative. And I think, you know, it's important to understand not every deal happens though. And you've got to think about, that's why I said earlier, what's important to you and have, have they agreed to what's important to you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine from a, from a healthcare legal aspect, because we, you know, the, the product that Boost provides is a software, we manage software for private practices to help them 
get new patients, communicate with those patients, use automation to speak to those patients as they progress down this, this funnel or this buying cycle. And so we go into every clinic that we work with and the, the range of how much people appear to care about, you know, different sunshine, stark, HIPAA, it's a big range, you know, from, oh my gosh, we would not even begin to think about doing that because that could be HIPAA violation to, hey, listen, I've been using my Yahoo account my whole career. And if, if that's my biggest concern, I got, I got bigger problems. <laughs> so I imagine you guys come in and start unearthing things. And I guess that is another question is, uh, do you know when was HIPAA written? Do you know what year the, that HIPAA was created? Oh God, you're really testing me here. It's at least 15 years old. And I think actually came out before the internet. And so now you have the internet, but you still have the same law as talking about patient data and how to manage it, communicate with it. Are people coming to you guys for HIPAA questions, advice, counsel? I mean, we definitely help set up our clients with the HIPAA documents they need. We do get questions about HIPAA. Some of our clients have gotten letters from the OCR for investigation related to HIPAA. I do sometimes do some HIPAA training where I'll go into a practice and kind of remind them of what the HIPAA requirements are, et cetera. And then it always happens like within two weeks of me giving that lecture, somebody does something bad, right? But things are very automated now. We're definitely, you know, I don't do the technology side. So there's a whole other side of HIPAA about whether stuff is properly encrypted, whether they're meeting the technical requirements. We do more of the patient complaints, right? The patient issues that they're stuck. But we definitely have people mailing stuff to the wrong address, calling, logging in under somebody else's password. That kind of stuff we deal with repeatedly. So yeah, so I would say it's a big issue. That's not the kind of stuff we see coming up in transactions. Oh, I yet to have a HIPAA issue. I mean, in the, in the due diligence, they always say, have you ever had a HIPAA investigation or a HIPAA complaint? There's never has been, but you know, the bigger things they're concerned about have to do with billing and compliance, you know, and marketing, which is mm -hmm. the anti-kickback statute in Stark, which impacts, you know, physician paying for referrals. Both of those statutes are paying for referrals, but Stark very often has to do with how physicians are being compensated, right? So there are a lot of very strict rules that practices need to be aware of, and they should be concerned. You know, I know everybody has differing levels of it, and I, you know, I come across that as well with counsel on the other side. Most private equity buyers do use large firms with regulatory counsel, okay? So they do not take it casually. It is worth your while to have somebody view what you're doing and make sure you're compliant. You know, the anti-kickback statute is a criminal statute. It's nothing to take lightly in terms of, you know, penalties you might have to pay. They can be, you know, quite significant depending on the law that you're violating, right? Stark and anti-kickback both give people opportunities to try and say, you know, mia culpa. I did something bad. How can I fix it? it? You know, and it's always, in our opinion, something that you want to consider doing. For sure, I have clients who say, yeah, nobody ever found out about it. Nobody ever will. So I can only advise them what the law requires. And of course, they make the ultimate decision. But, you know, if you're doing a, a private equity deal, buyer news now, right? Then you definitely have to do a self-disclosure. So your hands are fine. Whether you end up doing a transaction with them or not, by the way, that information is out there. Yes. Okay, so if you were going to give a private practitioner some advice and they said, hey, in the next two, three, five, six years, I may, you know, not today, I would entertain being bought or acquired. What are the, what are the top few things you would say, all right, then you need to start paying attention to these items. So at this moment, what would you say? Okay, over the next year, you need to get your house in order. And what are those things to start looking into? Well, the first thing is I would make sure that you're talking with your financial team so you understand 
what your EBITDA looks like and how you could take steps to improve that EBITDA, okay? Whether that means like getting rid of certain expenses, just increasing your profitability, you know, whatever that might be that you need to do, okay? Secondly, I would understand what kind of entity you are. Are you a C corporation? Are you an LLC, an S corporation? What are you? So for C corporation, you can be obviously double tax, right? At the corporate level and individual level. If you're a C corporation and you have non-competes in place for your owners, you really want to talk with your advisors about terminating those, okay? Part of what you're selling in order to avoid taxes would be your goodwill. And you can't sell your goodwill if you have a non-compete. Mm -hmm. So you want to talk about the timing on that and, you know, what your options are. In terms of healthcare, compliance would be key. I would have somebody review and make sure that you're actually billing and collecting appropriately. You're calling everything what should be, your compensation formulas compliant, and make changes, decide whether you have to, you know, self-report, whether you might have to refund some money, et cetera, and you want to do it well ahead of time. So those are really kind of the key things. I mean, I guess your corporate documents as well. I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, you know, have you made people promises? Um, can you change the way you're handling things so you don't make any new promises, right? Any rights of first refusal that are in there? What can we terminate and clean up? Can you find your corporate documents? So many times I'm like, you have your articles of corporation. Do you have a shareholders agreement? Oh, I think we signed one like 25 years ago, but I don't have a copy of it. I'm not sure. And there's somebody listed as like an officer who left, you know, 15 years ago. So cleaning up your corporate documents would be paid as well. The, the process of due diligence is very intense. Typically, when you sign your LOI, it is then followed by a month or two months, whatever it is of diligence, where you have to produce almost every single paper that exists in your entire office, every lease, every piece of financial information, every contract that's ever been signed, everything. And so you can get your house in order, figure out what you have, you know, look at the bills you're paying every month. Who are you paying them to? Do you have copies of contracts, right? There's some contracts where you can pay huge termination fees. Don't let those renew without renegotiating them, right? Um, figure out, you know, kind of what your contracts say, if there's any surprises in there. So really just kind of what you would expect in terms of preparing. But the minute then you have an LOI, you'll have this stuff. I mean, it may not still be perfect, but you can upload it. You know where to find it. It's complete. There's no surprises in there. Then you can close more quickly. Sometimes when you close can make a huge impact. I mean, think about it now. We're already in October. What is the tax difference between closing in 2022 and 2023? Is it going to make a difference? It could. So do we have the option? Not if there's a ton of diligence that we're just starting now that we're not in good shape for, right? Some deals can drag on for months and months if we find unexpected issues. So I like to think it's, there's no reason not to prepare ahead of time. Plus, even if you sell to like another doctor or the hospital, whatever, it's not private equity. You're, they're going to be asking for a lot of the same things, right? Yeah. But it just helps get you in good shape. Yeah. Is there, I guess, the physicians you work with, do you see a lot of them when they reach the end of their career, they just shut the door and walk away? Or it, what, what is the most common, how did that happen most commonly? Oh, well, I would say very rarely do I have a doctor than a solo that's shutting down. Okay. That does happen, but it is rare. I mean, more, you know, they might pass away or something like that. And there's a process that you follow for notifying patients, et cetera. More often, we have somebody who wants to, leave is thinking about closing. They start looking around. They may not always have a lot to sell, right? 
especially, you know, for smaller practices, primary care, et cetera, they might just go to the hospital and have an arrangement where the medical records are being acquired or a colleague might acquire those medical records. We might just do a transfer agreement. The idea is to make sure that patients are covered, right? And those records are, for HIPAA purposes, available, right? So we're really more often seeing either an outright sale or for my independent practices, there's usually, you know, a sale to a younger physician that's brought in. So, you know, I spend a lot of my time bringing in younger physicians to a practice over time. Some of the practices we've been with, and I've worked with doctors when they were young and now they're retiring, right? And over the years, we've brought in many, many associates and some of those associates became, you know, the senior guy in the group. So it is a, a self-fulfilling process. It goes on and on and on. It works extremely well. And so, you know, for those that think private equity is the only thing going on right now, definitely not. Most of our practices are still you know, handling it just the way they always have. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. M&A, it's a, it's a really hot topic right now. And I, I think we'll have enough feedback from this one. Maybe we could set up a second one. But yeah, Erica, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Great to be here.